a joy to gather with you. We had a good time at the Sunrise devotional this morning. It was, uh, it was special. We haven't done that before, but I think we'll do it again, and we'll just bring more layers next time. It was, uh, it was frosty. It was frosty, to be sure. Well, thank you for your donations to Life Choices. Um, they really do great work. Um, they saved 189 babies last year. That was an amazing number. And uh, not only that, but they are also quick and eager, uh, not just to talk about this life, but to talk about eternal life. They share the gospel with their clients when there are those opportunities. Um, so really, it is a great organization. They do amazing work, and uh, it is a blessing to be able to support them. So, so thank you for your donations to them. Um, why don't I pray over that now as we come to God's Word. Our Lord, we thank you for the gift of life. It is precious, Lord, truly sacred. And Lord, the human, human life is, uh, is unique. There is nothing like it, Lord, for we are made in your image. Having souls, Lord, created by you. And so, Father, we pray that, uh, Lord, that this, this, uh, this money, these, these offerings given in, uh, in glad hearts, that you would use it, Lord, for your glory to save the lives of more children. And Lord, to present more opportunities for our brothers and sisters at Life Choices to continue to present the gospel as they save babies as well. So please use this, Lord, we pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that we may come to your word, that we may gather together to rejoice that Jesus is alive. Lord, this is the foundation of our hope as Christians. And so this morning as we gather to hear what you have done through Jesus, as we hear of his victory and his triumph, would you encourage us? Lord, where there are those who are discouraged or doubting or, uh, Lord, despairing, may the good news that Jesus has risen fill their hearts with true joy today. Not superficial happiness, but true joy, a deep confidence in what Jesus has done. Father, we thank you for your word, that it contains just what we need to hear and that it tells us so much about Jesus and his resurrection. As we come to your word today, Lord, I pray that you, by your spirit, would open our eyes to the truths it contains and that we would leave changed, looking more like Christ and loving him more as our Redeemer and our Savior. Father, help me to be clear in, uh, in my presentation of what your word says. Help me to only speak that which accords with your word, that which agrees with your word, that your people may be encouraged and helped, and that Christ may be exalted. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is wonderful to celebrate the resurrection of Christ with you on this Easter morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, if this is your first time with us, uh, whether or not you plan to be back again, we're glad you're here this morning. It is great to have you and great to meet you. They say that there are two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. And uh, now that tax season is behind us, or for you procrastinators, will be tomorrow night uh, at uh, 11.59 p.m., let's talk about death. Death, you might say, isn't this supposed to be a, a really happy celebration of life? Yes, yes it is. But the resurrection of Christ means much more when it is set against the dark black backdrop of death. Death is inevitable. It is a guarantee for every single person on this planet. You will die. Some of us live to be older than others, but 
we will all die. This has been true for all of human existence. Death is certain. In fact, in 2017, scientists at the University of Arizona, they were biologists, concluded through their experiments that as much as we may be able to prolong human life, eventually, aging will lead to death. You could be 500 years old maybe, right, in, in 50 years when they get that technology figured out, but you will eventually die. Immortality is biologically impossible. Death is the enemy from which there is no escape. Now when you hear those words, when you consider your own death, how do you feel? What are the thoughts going through your head? Do you find yourself struck with fear, with anxiety, with sadness, with apathy? Who cares? As we consider death and suffering in the world, all people recognize this is not what should be. Whether you believe in God or not, you believe it is a noble thing to alleviate human suffering as much as we are able. Right? That's a good thing to do. Herman Bavink, a Reformed theologian, says this need for redemption, which is common to all humanity, is of very great importance. For this need is continually aroused in the hearts of people and kept there alive by God himself. It illustrates that God has not yet entirely left the human race to its own ways. This hope, this need for redemption, is an eradicable hope. Wherever you may stand religiously, you would agree there are things that could be better. Now, what if I told you that 2,000 years ago, somebody actually did defeat death's power? As we hear the news stories of horror across our globe or in Ukraine, what if I told you that 2,000 years ago, somebody came to defeat death's power? And what if I told you that in the future, this same person would come and erase all traces of death and suffering from the world? Well, that is what it is my joy to do this morning, to proclaim to you what the scriptures say, that Jesus has defeated death in his death, in his resurrection, and in his return. This is a message of pure hope for those who would trust Jesus to save them from sin and death. Now, normally on a Sunday morning, we'd pick one passage and we'd go through it verse by verse. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse on our normal Sunday services, but... This is a special morning. It is a different morning. And so we're going to be visiting different parts of Scripture to get a big picture of what Jesus has done in defeating death. So there will be some Bible flipping. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd encourage you to grab one off that back table. These are our gift to you. You can take that home with you. But we are going to be looking through Scripture at how Jesus defeats death in his dying, in his rising, and in his return. Let's start with this first point. Jesus defeats death by dying. Jesus defeats death by dying. And, and before we get into this, let me preface this by saying, um, sometimes when we go in God's word, there are commands, right? Where God says, live this way, right? Because of what Jesus has done. Now, there are other times in scripture where we simply see the good news. This is what God has done for you. Just marvel in it. Just rejoice in it. This is that kind of message. This is not a, a message of practical life application tips. This is simply a message of saying, this is what God has done through Jesus. Just so we're all on the same page. Jesus defeats death by dying. Now, in any good story, there's a conflict. Right? There's a crisis, a seemingly impossible situation to be overcome. If there is not this crisis in a story, it's boring. Right? It's just not exciting. 
there's not really any story to tell. So in any good story, there is a crisis to be overcome. And this is true for the greatest story of all, the story that is told in the pages of Scripture, pages of the Bible. The Bible begins with God creating all things and declaring it to be very good, very good. But it was not long after this that Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, plunging themselves and all of humanity into a state of sin, right? And what that means is a state of rebellion against the God who had created them. And it wasn't long before Adam and Eve had children, Cain and Abel. Humanity became evil. Cain kills his brother Abel because of sin. Eventually, all of humanity that was born was evil. Genesis 6-5 says, Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty bleak picture. Pretty black and white. And each one of us here has experienced what it's like to be a sinner. Nobody among us would dare raise our hand and say, yes, I'm perfect. We've all done things we regret. We've all done things we are ashamed of. We've all done things that we know are wrong. We all have failed to love God as he's worthy of. We've all failed to love our neighbor as ourself. But rather, we have sought to be the gods of our own lives and pursue our own interests instead of our fellow man's. The Bible agrees with this portrait. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All people have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And the result of Adam's sin against God and the result of our sin against God, well, the Bible tells us it is death. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the problem. This is the crisis of the story. Death comes through sin, and because of sin, death reigns in the world. Adam sinned, you and I sinned, and so we die. And when we say that, when we're talking about death, we're not just talking about physical death, that's part of it, the death of the body, but we're also talking about the spiritual death of the soul. And the eternal death resulting from God's judgment upon man's sin. But death's corruption in the world, in the body, in the soul, is not how God originally created nor designed things to be. God said everything was very good before sin was in the world. And so from eternity past, God, who knows all things, had a plan. A plan of redemption within the members of the Trinity. The Father would send His Son to save sinful people from sin, from Satan, and from death. And strangely enough, the first step in the defeat of death would be the death of God's Son Himself. There's two main ways that Jesus delivers us from death through His death in the Bible. The first is that Jesus' death pays for our sin. Right? Jesus' death pays for our sin. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Jesus defeats death by paying for our sin. Romans chapter 5. Start reading in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, in other words, declared righteous through his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is, I think, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It just summarizes the good news down so well. Notice right off the bat how you and I are described. Ungodly, weak, sinners, enemies. In other words, we are those who would be righteously condemned in our sins to die. We have broken God's law, both in the body and in hell, under the righteous wrath of God. But look what Christ does. Look what Christ does. Not what you do, but what Christ does. Christ dies for the ungodly. Christ dies for sinners. Christ dies for the weak, for those who are condemned to die for sin. This is substitution. This is substitution. Christ dies in the place of we who are ungodly, weak sinners. He dies in our place, bearing the punishment and the judgment and the wrath that we deserve. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.24 writes that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now Jesus himself, he had no sin at all. He obeyed God's law perfectly every second of his life. Fully God, fully man, fully righteous. And yet he says, I will take the sins of my people upon me and suffer and die in their place. The punishment you and I deserve is eternal death under the wrath of God. But Jesus took that for us so that we might be saved, that the price might be paid, that the cup would be drank to the bottom. Our sin against God is like a debt. There's a record of our sin which would condemn us. But Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 tells us that God has forgiven us all of our sins because in Jesus' death, our sin has been canceled. He has canceled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It is nailed to the cross and it is left there. You cannot be punished for what has been forgiven. You cannot be condemned for what has been pardoned. And because of Jesus' substitutionary death, the record that you and I have has been wiped clean. So for those who trust in Christ, they will no longer face death as a punishment for sin. That's not what death is for the believer anymore. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus defeats death by dealing with our sin, by atoning for it, by paying the price that you and I owed to God by wiping our debt clean so that death no longer is a punishment for us. The second way that Jesus defeats death by dying is in destroying Satan's power. Destroying Satan's power. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 is where we'll be looking. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 
the author of Hebrews is writing about Jesus. And he says, since therefore the children share, those are, right, Christ's people, share in flesh and blood. In other words, we are humans, human beings with bodies. Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He was born as a human, right, uh, divine and human, but he took upon himself a human nature that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now the author of Hebrews is describing the defeat of the devil, of Satan, and the deliverance of the devil's prisoners. Those are Christ's people. And notice in verse 14 how the Son of God takes on flesh and blood, right? We call this the incarnation. We celebrate it at Christmas time. He takes upon himself a human body and a human soul, right? He is an eternal spirit. The Son of God, uncreated, but yet he unites himself to a human body and soul in the person of Jesus Christ. Because what does the author of Hebrews tells us? Uh, who is he coming to save? Human beings. Human beings. But on top of that, there is a more ultimate reason why Jesus, why the Son of God, takes on flesh. And that is to die. The Son of God takes on flesh in, in Christ Jesus to die. In his divine nature, the Son is an eternal spirit. You cannot kill an eternal spirit. Right? It's impossible. And an eternal spirit could not die in the place of human beings. But by taking on humanity, the Son is able to die and to die in our place as humans. And through his death, look what he does. In verse 14, he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, what does this mean, that Satan has the power of death? And, and how is it that Jesus destroys this power in his own death? Well, let's think back to the Garden of Eden for a moment. Satan's ultimate goal in the Garden of Eden was to get Adam and Eve to disobey God so that they might die. Right? That was the command. God says, don't eat of this tree. And the day that you do, you shall die. Satan says, no, 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 no. You're not going to die. He deceives Adam and Eve, and God's word stands fast. Satan knew what would happen. You see, Satan is keenly interested in the death of human beings. It is his weapon against man because he knows what it means for the soul of man. John MacArthur writes, Satan knew that men, if they remained as they were, would die and go out of God's presence into hell forever. Satan wants to hold on to men until they die because once they are dead, the opportunity for salvation is gone forever. Men cannot escape after death. Yet through the death of Christ, the sin that condemned us was dealt with, and death for us is no longer Satan's weapon of fear, but rather the door which God's people walk through into eternal life. That's a total change, right? Death still exists, but what death is to us is far different. Death is not the end of the road for the Christian, it is the beginning. And the result of this is what we see in verse 15. Jesus, through his death in our place, delivers us from Satan. He delivers those of us who lived in fear of death and were in bondage to that fear. Fear no longer has, uh, the, the fear of death no longer has any power over us. Now, if you do not know Jesus, if you do not trust him alone to redeem you, then you do have reason to fear death. You do. There is no hope after death. It is the end of the line. 
but God has been gracious to you. He's been patient. Right? You are here this morning hearing good news. And if you come to him in faith, if you have come to him in faith in the past, if you believe that what he did in his death is sufficient to deal with your sin, then there is no longer any reason for you to fear death itself. That fear of death no longer has a hold upon you. Now, Jesus' death does not remove the existence of death, right? We know that. But rather, for the Christian, it removes death's terror, condemnation, and punishment. Uh, death's power is defeated through Christ's death, and Satan is left weaponless. But Jesus' death alone could not have defeated death. And in fact, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, if Jesus had died like any other man and stayed dead, there would be no hope. There'd be no hope. We'd be wasting our time here this morning. Ultimately, if Jesus' death is the whole picture, then we, we just have a good example, right? A historical figure who started a movement in the past, and, and that's about it. But everything that we have seen is accomplished in Jesus' death because of his resurrection. Jesus' death is effectual because of his resurrection. Let's look at our next point. Jesus defeats death by rising, by rising. This is the heart of Easter, isn't it? We're celebrating nothing less than the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may have celebrated Easter for decades, decades, right? Uh, for others, this may be the first time you're at an Easter service. Um, but regardless of how many times you may have heard the Easter story, Regardless of how many times you've been to church in the spring to hear about the resurrection, just stop for a moment to think about what we are doing, what we are rejoicing in. We are proclaiming this morning that Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, physically, bodily rose from the dead. When was the last time you saw that happen? That does not happen every day. As Christians, we, we cannot view the resurrection as mundane just because we're familiar with it. Jesus actually rose from the grave, from the dead, and he is alive. That changes everything. Now, if you read the Bible, there are other instances of people coming back from the dead. So what's the difference here? Well, there's a major difference. Jesus isn't just coming back from the dead in his old body simply to die again in a couple decades. No, Jesus' resurrection is a full victory over sin, Satan, and death. He defeats death by rising from the dead. And there's two major ways in which his resurrection defeats death. Now, the first is that Jesus' resurrection demonstrates he is the one who has power over death. Jesus is the master of death. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is... Following Jesus' ascension into heaven, Peter is giving a sermon in Jerusalem explaining what Jesus has done and explaining how Jesus fulfills parts of the Old Testament. And look what Peter says about Jesus in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God 
raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's what the Apostle Peter says, and I, I love what he says here. God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death, right? That's another way of saying, uh, you know, you can imagine Jesus is tied up, right? Tied up, like Samson, right, in the Old Testament. But those cords of death, those ropes are nothing for him, and he bursts out of them. They cannot hold him. By rising from the dead, Jesus demonstrates that death is no match for him. No match for him at all. Death is not greater than Christ. Death would not master Christ, but Jesus would be the victor over death. He would come out on top once and for all. Because he had no sin. So the grave could not claim him. Jesus' power over death and the resurrection is not a one-time event either. It's not one skirmish of many. But he is the victor forever. Uh, turn to the very back of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John is writing here about Christ. Now John saw the risen Christ on earth, and here in his revelation, he sees the glorified Christ in heaven. And what Jesus says to John is powerful. We'll start reading in verse 12. Verse 12 of Revelation chapter 1. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Notice Jesus has kept his human body, but it is glorified. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and in his face was like the shun, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said this: Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and Hades. Did you catch that last bit? Who has the keys of death and Hades? It's Jesus. If you have the keys to your enemy's stronghold, if you have the key combination to Fort Knox, uh, you have a lot of power, don't you? You have a lot of power. Your enemy could be defenseless before you. Now consider what this means for a second. Death is still a sign of the fall. It is still the result of sin in the world. But in the sovereign hands of our Savior who holds its keys, death is no longer an enemy to be feared. Now, sure, right? we all may fear the painful process of dying. Nobody wants to go through the process of dying. But death itself is no longer a fearful thing for the Christian since death has been conquered by Christ and is now the door that he has the keys to through which we walk into eternal life. One of my favorite hymns words it so well, Jesus lives and death is now but my entrance into glory. What is death for the Christian but that, an entrance into glory? And because Jesus has conquered death, we can trust that he is our good shepherd and king will lead us to eternal rest 
through the valley of the shadow of death, from this life into the next. But Jesus' resurrection doesn't just have implications for that moment when we die, the future. No, Jesus' resurrection actually provides new life for us now, in our souls. You see, when Jesus rose from the grave, he didn't come back in the same mortal body that he died in. He did resurrect bodily. He wasn't just a spirit. But his body was transformed, glorified. And the mortal life he had in his human nature had been changed into eternal life. The author of Hebrews words it so well. says that Jesus has the power of an indestructible life. Likewise, the apostle Paul writes that Jesus, being raised from the dead, will never die again because death no longer has dominion over him. Romans 6, 10. But here's the amazing thing. The Bible actually describes how Christians are united with Christ. That we actually experience a taste of the resurrection now in our souls. That what Jesus went through in his death and resurrection, we participate in spiritually now. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we'll see that in more detail. Colossians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verse 11 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes this, In him also, meaning in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This is a spiritual circumcision, being marked spiritually as one of God's people. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our sins, all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's a lot we could talk about there, right? There's a lot going on in this little paragraph, but there's a few things that are especially relevant for this morning as we celebrate Easter. So first, look how Paul describes in verse 12 how we have been spiritually buried with Christ in baptism, right? And of course, the implication is we have died with him, and we see that in Romans chapter 6. We've died with Christ spiritually. We've been buried with Christ spiritually through baptism. And we are raised with Christ through faith and the powerful working of God, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, none of us here have physically died and been resurrected yet. That's why we're here. Um, this is a spiritual resurrection. And we see that in verse 13. Paul says, you were dead, not in the body, but in your trespasses, in your sins. You were spiritually dead. Right? Each one of us, before Christ, lives in a state of spiritual deadness. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead, our souls have been raised to newness of life with him, right? The fancy word for this is regeneration or being born again. Regeneration or being born again. This is something that actually happens to a person when they become a Christian. You see, Jesus' resurrection wasn't just a historical event. 
It wasn't just a blip on the timeline. It was the very accomplishment of our salvation. And we experience the effects of that even now, right, as we trust Christ. Because we're united to Him by faith, we participate in His death and resurrection spiritually. We get a taste of that in our souls being made alive with Him. And when this happens to a person, it's, it's radical. This is receiving a new heart. The Bible says you, you used to have a heart of stone, but when you are made alive with Christ, you receive a new heart, a heart of flesh. In other words, a heart that is alive, that is feeling towards God. Not one that is prone uh, and, and, and bent in rebellion against Him, but one that, even though it still struggles with sin, desires to know God more. And this is the beginning of what the Bible calls eternal life. When you are made alive with Christ, that's like the very, very beginning, the seed of eternal life, we could say. Right? That begins when a person's soul is made alive with Christ by God's grace. There is no salvation. There is no regeneration without the resurrection. There is no spiritual life now if there was no resurrection on that Sunday morning. But you and I are more than just a soul. We also have a body, right? We are body and soul, one person, right? And if Jesus is triumphant over death, then why do people still die? Why do people still die? Sure, you know, our souls are made alive with him. We have a spiritual resurrection. That's all well and good, but what about our bodies? Does God not care about our physical bodies? Well, that brings us to our last point. Because while Jesus' triumph over death is complete, it comes in stages of history. And we've seen how Jesus' death defeats death in dealing with our sin and stripping Satan of his power, his weapon. We've seen how Jesus' resurrection was his true victory over death and brings us new life now. And now as we come to this third point, we will see how Jesus will destroy once and for all death, sin, and suffering at his return. Jesus defeats death by returning. On June 6, 1944, more than 156,000 Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy. Now, this mission would be later widely known as D-Day. And due to a massive influx of troops and equipment into the European theater of war, it marked a critical turning point in World War II. But the war was not over then. It would be 336 days after that, until Victory in Europe Day was announced, marked by Germany's total surrender and defeat. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but it is somewhat illustrative of the relationship between Jesus' resurrection and return. Jesus has triumphed over death, right? The direction of the battle is set. But these enemies, sin, Satan, death, continue to fight. And you and I experience this, don't we? We, we lose loved ones to death. We still find ourselves tempted to sin. We find ourselves assailed by the fiery darts of Satan and his minions at times. But the Bible does promise a day in which all of these foes will, they won't even be able to do anything. They won't even be able to fight anymore. They simply will not exist. A day when all things are made new and sin and death cannot be found in God's universe anymore. And that day is the day of Christ's return. On that day, evil will be no more, and God's people will not only have souls that have been raised with Christ, but new physical bodies that will never die again. We're going to go to that famous resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. 
1 Corinthians 15. We've been there a couple times over this Easter weekend, but we're going to go there again. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll start reading in verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You can be defeated and not yet destroyed. But it is the destruction we see at the return of Christ. Paul writes that just as Adam brought death through his sin, Christ brings life through his righteousness. And look what Paul says in verses 22 and 23. All in Christ shall be made alive. You're either in Adam or in Christ. There's no middle ground. right? You are either in Adam or in Christ. And it is God's grace by faith that moves a person out of being in Adam to Christ. And all who are in Christ shall be made alive. And Paul says this will happen when Christ returns at his coming. Those who belong to Christ will be raised. And when we jump down to the end of the chapter in verse 49, we see that Paul says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that is Christ. He goes on to say, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and he quotes from the Old Testament, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what Paul's saying there? Just as Christ rose from the grave in a glorified, new, immortal body, so we shall too when he comes. And notice how when this happens, the dead are raised with Christ at his return, and it will be fully and finally true in every sense that death is swallowed up in victory, destroyed. Now this resurrected body, it's still you, right? It's, it's not a, a different body, it's still you, but it's immortal, it's imperishable. It, it's not going to come with the aches and the pains and the weaknesses and the struggles that you face now in life on this earth. No, it'll be a body free from sin, free from temptation, free from sickness. And when Christ returns, all of his people will be made new, not just in soul, but in body as well. We will be raised just as he was. If we go back to verse 24 of the same chapter, we see that this final defeat of death does not just extend to our bodies, not just us as people, but to all creation. Now, Paul writes that Christ will destroy 
every rule, every authority, every power, Christ will throw down and defeat Satan, his minions, the evil kingdoms of this world, and finally, death. Death. His reign as risen king will be seen by all and fully established. He will make all things new. Those things you hear on the news that trouble you, you will hear of no more. And there's no more fitting place to turn now than the end of the book, Revelation 21. Join me as we look at Revelation 21. This is the end of the book and it is the end of the story of God's redemption. This is the conclusion here in Revelation 21. John writes what he is seeing. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It was gone, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. <clears throat> and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And notice what he says next. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. When Jesus returns, 2 Peter 3 tells us that this creation will be dissolved and remade replaced by a new heavens and a new earth. And what we've just read is a picture. It's a window into what that will be like. Death will be no more. Sorrow will be no more. Tears, pain, mourning shall be no more. They will not be found anywhere in the new creation. Not just defeated, but destroyed. And so when Jesus' death Resurrection and we in return, we see the fullness of God's redemptive plan unfold. It's not just a plan for 2,000 years ago. It's not just a plan for today. It's not just a plan for the future. It is a plan for all time and all creation. This is the ultimate message of hope, that there is a risen king, a champion, who has and will vanquish the universal enemy, death. If you're here this morning and you do not acknowledge or trust Jesus, again, we are glad you're here and we care for you. Um, if we did not care for you, if I did not care for you, I would not say that you would face death on your own. I would not tell you these hard things. But the reality is if you do not trust Christ, then you do face death on your own. You face your sin on your own. You face the judgment of God on your own because you're representing yourself. But Jesus came that those who have faith in him, who trust him alone to save them and turn from their rebellion against him, would share in his victory, that they would be represented by him on the cross before God and have eternal life. Now, if you're here this morning and you do trust Jesus, then let your faith and hope in him be renewed again as you consider his glorious triumph over death. That is an anchor of joy for our souls. Amen? Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray together. 
Our Lord Jesus, we praise you. You are the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave, who rose victorious through the strife for those you came to save. And Lord, we rejoice in your glories. And we exalt you, for there is none like you. You humbled yourself to the point of death, Lord, but rose again and have been exalted by the Father. Lord, I pray that you would help us to marvel, to rejoice, to wonder at your return, at your resurrection, at your death. And that, Lord, we would have a right perspective of this life. Because the fact you rose again from the dead, the fact that you died for our sins, the fact that you are returning to judge the living and the dead, Lord, that has an impact on every area of life. So, Father, as we go today, we pray that you would help us to see this world, to see ourselves, to see our future through the lens of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died, rose, and will return for sinners. We thank you for our hope in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.